Section 88 of The Toilers of the Sea by Victor Hugo. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Part Third, Deruchette, Book First, Night and Moon, Chapter One, The Bell of the Port. The St. Sampson of today is almost a city. The St. Sampson of forty years ago was almost a village. When the spring had come and the long winter evenings were over, people made short evenings there and went to bed at nightfall. St. Sampson was an ancient curfew parish, having preserved the habit of blowing out its candle early. People there went to bed and rose with the day. These ancient Norman villages imitate the habits of their fowls. Let us mention in addition that St. Sampson, with the exception of a few rich bourgeois families, has a population of quarrymen and carpenters. The port is a port for repairing. All day long they quarry stone or hew beams. Here the pick, there the hammer. A perpetual handling of oak and of granite. At night they are dropping with fatigue and they sleep like lead. Heavy work brings heavy slumbers. One evening in the beginning of May, Mesletiari, after having for several moments gazed at the moon through the trees and listened to Deruchette's step as she walked alone in the cool of the evening in the garden of Les Bravais, retired to his chamber, opening towards the port, and went to bed. Douce and Grasse were already in bed. Everyone was asleep in the house except Deruchette. Everyone in St. Sampson was also asleep doors and shutters were everywhere closed. There was no passing to and fro in the streets. A few lights, like the blinking of eyes about to close, gleamed redly here and there from the small windows in the roofs, a sign of the retiring of the servants. It was some time since nine o'clock had sounded from the old Roman ivy-draped clock-tower, which shares with the church of St. Brelad in Jersey the singularity of bearing as its date four ones, one, 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 which signifies eleven hundred and eleven. Mesletieri's popularity in St. Sampson was the result of his success. Success gone, a void had resulted. We are forced to believe that bad luck is contagious, and that people who are not fortunate have the plague. So speedily are they placed in quarantine. The handsome sons of good families avoided Derichette. The isolation around Les Bravais was now such that they had not even learned in the house the little scrap of local news which had set St. Sampson in commotion that day. The rector of the parish, the Reverend Joe Ebenezer Caudray, was rich. His uncle, the magnificent dean of St. Asaph, had just died in London. The news had been brought by the mail sloop Kashmir, which had arrived from England that very morning and the mast of which could be seen in the roadstead of St. Pierre-Port. The cashmere was to set out for Southampton the next day at noon, and it was said was to carry with it the reverend rector, recalled to England in haste to be present at the official opening of the will, not to mention the other pressing demands in connection with taking possession of a great inheritance. All day long St. Sampson had discussed, in a confused way, the cashmere, the reverend Ebenezer, his dead uncle, his wealth, his departure, his possible promotions in the future, 
had formed the burden of the buzzing. A single house, not being informed, had remained silent. Les Bravais. Mes Thierry had thrown himself into his hammock, all dressed. Flinging himself into his hammock had been his resource ever since the wreck of the Durande. Stretching out on his pallet is something to which every prisoner has recourse, and Mes Thierry was the prisoner of his grief. He went to bed. It was a truce, a space for taking breath, a suspension of ideas. Did he sleep? No. Did he keep watch? No. Properly speaking, for the last two months and a half, two months and a half had elapsed since the disaster. Mes Thierry had been like a somnambulist. He had not yet recovered possession of himself. He was in that mixed and confused state which those are acquainted with who have undergone great affliction. His reflections were not thought. His sleep was not repose. During the day he was not fully awake. At night he was not asleep. He was up and had gone to bed. That was all. When he was in his hammock, oblivion came to him a little. He called this sleeping. Chimeras floated over him, and within him, the nocturnal cloud filled with confused faces traversed his brain. The Emperor Napoleon dictated his memoirs to him. There were several derichettes. Queer birds were in the trees. The streets of Lons de Saulnier became serpents. Nightmare was the respite from despair. He passed his nights in dreaming and his days in reverie. He sometimes remained a whole afternoon motionless at his window, which, as the reader will remember, opened on the port. With his head bent, his elbows on the stone, his ears resting on his fists, his back turned to the whole world, his eyes fixed on the old iron ring fastened in the wall of his house, to which the Durand had formerly been moored, he was watching the rust collect on that ring. Miss Thierry was reduced to the mechanical function of living. The most valiant of men on being deprived of their realizable idea come to that pass. It is a result of an existence which has been rendered void. Life is the voyage. The idea is the itinerary. Where there is no longer an itinerary, one stops short. The goal is lost. Force is dead. Fate holds an obscure discretionary power. It can touch even our moral being with its wand. Despair is almost the destitution of the soul. Very great spirits alone resist, and still. Mes Thierry meditated continually, if absorption can be called meditation, at the base of a sort of precipice of troubles. Heartbroken words escaped him like the following, all that remains for me is to ask from above my ticket of departure. Let us note a contradiction in this nature, as complex as the sea, of which Thierry was, so to speak, the product, Mais Thierry did not pray. To be powerless is in itself a kind of force. In the presence of our two great blindnesses, destiny and nature, it is in his powerlessness that man has found his chief support, prayer. Man makes his terror lend him succor. He demands aid of his fears. Anxiety counsels him to kneel. Prayer is an enormous force, peculiar to the soul, 
and of the same species as mystery. Prayer addresses itself to the magnanimity of the shadows. Prayer looks at the mystery with the very eyes of the shadow, and before the powerful intentness of that suppliant gaze one feels that it is possible to disarm the unknown. This possibility once realized is a consolation in itself. But Mesletieri did not pray. While he was happy, God existed for him, in flesh and blood, one might say. Lettieri spoke to him, pledged his word to him, almost shook hands with him from time to time. But in Lettieri's unhappiness, God was eclipsed, a not infrequent phenomenon. This happens when one has made for himself a good God who is a good fellow. In the state of mind in which Lettieri then was, there existed for Lettieri but one clear vision, Deruchette's smile. Beyond that smile, all was dark. For some time past, no doubt on account of the loss of the Durande, the counter-shock of which she felt, this charming smile of Deruchette's had become more rare. She appeared thoughtful. Her bird-like and childlike pretty ways had disappeared. She was no longer seen to make a courtesy in the morning at the sound of the daybreak gun, and say to the rising sun, Boom! Day! Pray take the trouble to enter. She wore a very serious air at times, a sad thing in this sweet being. Nevertheless she made an effort to smile at Mesletieri and to divert him, but her gaiety grew more tarnished from day to day and became covered with dust, like the wing of a butterfly which has a pin through its body. Let us add that either out of grief for her uncle's grief, for there are such things as reflected sorrows, or for other reasons, she seemed now to incline greatly towards religion. In the days of the former rector, Monsieur Jacquemin Hérode, she had only gone to church, as the reader knows, four times a year. She was very assiduous there now. She never missed a service, either on Sunday or on Thursday. The pious souls of the parish beheld this amendment with satisfaction, for it is great good fortune when a young girl, who runs so many risks for men, turns towards God. This at least causes the poor parents to feel more at ease on the score of love affairs. In the evening, whenever the weather permitted, she strolled for an hour or two in the garden of Les Bravais. She was almost as pensive there as Mes Lettieri, and always alone. Deruchette was the last to go to bed. This did not prevent Douce and Grasse from always keeping an eye upon her through that instinct for watching which is common to domestics. Spying relieves the tedium of serving. As for Mes Lettieri, in that abstracted state of his mind, these little alterations in Deruchette's habits escaped him. Moreover, he had not been born a duenna. He did not even notice Deruchette's punctual attendance on the parish services. Always tenacious in his prejudices against things and people pertaining to the clergy, he would have viewed this frequentation of church with no pleasure. It was not because his own moral condition was not in process of modification, Grief is a cloud and changes its form. Robust souls, as we have just said, are sometimes, by certain blows of ill fortune, 
almost if not wholly thrown off their bearings virile characters like letieri react in a given time despair has ascending degrees from prostration one mounts to despondency from despondency to affliction from affliction to melancholy melancholy is a twilight suffering melts into it in somber joy melancholy is the happiness of being sad these mournful alterations were not made for letieri neither the nature of his temperament nor the character of his unhappiness were adapted to these delicate shades but at the moment when we find him again the reverie of his first despair had been for about a week tending to dissipate without being less sad letieri was less inert he was still somber but he was no longer gloomy a certain perception of facts and events had come back to him and he had begun to experience something of that phenomenon which may be called the re-entrance into reality thus during the day in the lower room he did not listen to the people's words but he heard them grasse came in triumph one morning to tell derichette that mesletterie had broken the wrapper of a newspaper this half-acceptance of reality is in itself a good symptom it is convalescence great misfortunes stun it is in this way that one emerges from the shock but this amelioration first produces an aggravation of the evil the previous state of dreaminess blunted the suffering one saw indistinctly one felt but little now the vision is clear one escapes nothing one bleeds at everything pain is accentuated by all the details which one perceives one beholds all again in memory to remember all is to regret all there are all sorts of bitter aftertastes in this return to the real one is better and at the same time worse this was letieri's experience his sufferings were more distinct it was a shock which had restored mes letieri to the sense of reality let us describe what this shock was one afternoon about the fifteenth or twentieth of april the two knocks which announced the postman had been heard at the door of the big room of les bravets douce had opened the door it was in fact a letter this letter came from the sea it was addressed to mes letieri it was postmarked lisbois douce had carried the letter to mes letieri who was shut up in his chamber he had taken the letter placed it mechanically on the table and had not glanced at it this letter remained a full week on the table with its seal unbroken but one morning it chanced that douce said to mes letieri monsieur shall i brush the dust off your letter letieri appeared to wake up all right said he and he opened the letter he read as follows at sea march tenth mes letieri of st sampson you will be glad to receive tidings of me i am aboard the tamaulipas bound for never come back among the crew there is a sailor ayer tostevin of guernsey who will go back and who will have some things to tell you i take advantage of our speaking the ship herman cortez bound for lisbon 
to send you this letter. Be astonished. I am an honest man, as honest as Sieur Clubin. I am bound to believe that you know what has occurred. Nevertheless, it may not be superfluous for me to inform you. Here it is. I have restored your money to you. I borrowed from you, somewhat irregularly, fifty thousand francs. Before leaving Saint-Malo, I handed to your confidential man, Sieur Clubin, three banknotes of a thousand pounds each, making seventy-five thousand francs. You will no doubt find this reimbursement sufficient. Sieur Clubin protected your interests and took your money with energy. He struck me as very zealous, which is my reason for notifying you. Your other confidential man, Rantaine. P.S. Sieur Clubin had a revolver, which explains why I have no receipt. Touch a torpedo, touch a charge-laden jar, and you will experience what Letieri felt on reading this letter. Beneath that envelope, in that sheet of paper folded in four, to which he had paid so little attention at first, there was a commotion. He recognized the writing, he recognized the signature. As for the fact, at the first moment he understood nothing about it. Such a commotion it was that it set his mind on its feet again, so to speak. This phenomenon of the seventy-five thousand francs confided by Rantaine to Clubert being an enigma was the useful feature of the shock, in that it forced Letieri's brain to work. Conjecture is a healthy occupation for the mind, reason is awakened, logic is called forth. For some time past, public opinion in Guernsey had been occupied in rejudging Clubin, that honest man for so many years so unanimously regarded with esteem. People began to question and to have their doubts. There were wagers laid for and against. Singular lights had been thrown on the subject. Clubin began to be illuminated, that is to say, he became black. A judicial investigation had taken place in St. Malo to learn what had become of the Coast Guardsman number 619. Legal perspicacity had gone astray, which is frequently the case. It had started with the supposition that the Coast Guardsman must have been enticed away by Zuela and embarked on board the Tamaulipas for Chile. This ingenious hypothesis had gone astray in many respects. The short-sightedness of justice had not even perceived Rantaine, but during the investigation the examining magistrates had come upon other trails. This obscure affair was complicated. Clubin had entered into the enigma. A coincidence, perhaps a connection, had been established between the departure of the Tamaulipas and the loss of the Durande. Clubin had been recognized in the wine-shop of the Dinan Gate, where Clubin thought he was not known. The keeper of the shop had talked. Clubin had bought a bottle of brandy. For whom? The gunsmith of the Rue Saint-Vicente had talked. Clubin had bought a revolver. Against whom? The landlord of the Jean Tavern had talked. Clubin had been inexplicably absent. Captain Gertrais Gaboureau had talked. Clubin had been determined to set out, although warned, and aware that he was going to meet the fog. The crew of the Durand had talked. In fact, a full cargo was not taken, 
and the stowage was badly done, a piece of negligence easy to understand if a captain desires to wreck his vessel. The Guernsey passenger had talked. Clubin had fancied that he was wrecked on the handways. The people of Torteval had talked. Clubin had gone thither a few days before the loss of the Durande, and had strolled towards Plainmont, close to the handways. He carried a valise. He went away with it, and he returned without it. The bird-nesters had talked. Their story might seem to have some connection with Clubin's disappearance, provided only that smugglers were substituted for the ghosts. Lastly, the haunted house of Plainmont itself had spoken. People determined to investigate the matter had climbed up into it and had found there, what? That same valise of Clubin's. The Duzaine of Torteval had seized the bag and had it opened. It contained provisions, a spyglass, a chronometer, a man's clothing and linen, marked with Clubin's initials. All this was construed in the gossip of St. Malo and of Guernsey, and ended in a decision of something like barratry. The confused features of the case were brought together. They proved a singular disregard of advice, an acceptance of the chances of the fog, a suspicious negligence in the stowage, a bottle of brandy, a drunken helmsman, a substitution of the captain himself for the helmsman, a turn of the helm which was very awkward, to say the least. The heroism of remaining on the wreck became knavery. However, Clubin had mistaken the reef. The intention of Barratry admitted the choice of the Hanways was understood. The coast easily reached by swimming, a sojourn in the haunted house while awaiting an opportunity to escape. The valise, that provision for emergencies, completed the proof. By what bond this adventure was connected with that of the Coast Guardsman could not be perceived. Some connection was suspected, nothing more. In connection with that man, the guard number 619, a glimpse of a whole tragic drama was to be seen. Perhaps Clubin had played no part in it, but he could be perceived in the side scenes. All was not explained by Barratry. There was an unemployed revolver. This revolver probably belonged to the other affair. The scent of the people is fine and just. Public instinct excels in these restorations of the truth made of bits and morsels. Only in these facts, whence probable barratry stood forth, there existed serious uncertainties. All held good, all agreed, but the basis was lacking. No one wrecks a vessel for the pleasure of wrecking it. No one runs all those risks of the fog, the reef, swimming, concealment, and flight, without some interval in the matter. What could have been Clubin's interest? His act was seen, but not his motive. Hence a doubt in many minds. Where there is no motive it seems as though there were no act. The gap was an important one. This gap had just been filled by Rantaine's letter. This letter gave Clubin's motive, seventy-five thousand francs to steal. Rantaine was the deus ex machina. He had descended from the clouds with a candle in his hand. His letter furnished the final gleam of light. It explained all, and announced in addition a witness, Ayer Tostevin. 
a decisive point it explained the employment for the revolver rantaine was undoubtedly thoroughly posted in the matter his letter permitted one to lay his finger on the whole no extenuation was possible to clubin's villainy he had premeditated the shipwreck and the proof was the valise carried to the haunted house and even supposing him to be innocent admitting the wreck to be accidental ought he not at the last moment having made up his mind to sacrifice himself on the wreck to have handed the seventy-five thousand francs for mes Letterie to the men who were escaping in the longboat the evidence was startling what had become of clubin now he had probably been the victim of his mistake he had doubtless perished on the Douvres reef this structure of conjectures very nearly answering as it will be seen to the reality occupied mes Letterie's mind for many days rantaine's letter rendered him the service of forcing him to think there was a first shock of surprise then he made the effort at reflection he made a still more difficult effort to obtain information he was obliged to listen to and even to seek conversation at the end of a week he had become practical to a certain extent his mind had regained coherence and was almost restored he had emerged from his troubled state admitting that mes Letterie had ever been able to entertain any hope of reimbursement from rantaine this letter had caused his last chance to vanish it added to the catastrophe of the durande this new shipwreck of seventy-five thousand francs it put him in possession of that money just enough to make him feel its loss this letter revealed to him the very bottom of his ruin hence a new suffering and a very acute one which we have just pointed out he began a thing which he had not done for two months to take an interest in his household what was to become of it what must be reformed about it petty annoyances at a thousand points almost worse than despair to undergo your misfortunes in detail to dispute foot by foot with an accomplished foe the ground which it has just wrested from you is odious misfortune in the mass can be accepted not its dust the great total may overwhelm but the detail tortures just now catastrophe struck you like a thunderbolt now it trifles with you it is humiliation aggravating ruin it is a second and hideous desolation added to the first one step nearer annihilation after the shroud the rag there is no sadder thought than that of diminishing to be ruined seems simple a violent blow the brutality of fate catastrophe once for all so be it one accepts it all is over one is ruined that is well one is dead not at all one is alive one perceives it on the very next day to what to pinpricks such and such a passer-by does not salute you the merchants shower down their bills upon you yonder is one of your enemies laughing perhaps he is laughing at arnal's last pun but all the same that pun only seems so charming to him because you are ruined you read your fall even in glances of indifference 
the people who used to dine with you consider three courses too much on your table your defects are apparent to everyone cases of ingratitude no longer wait but proclaim themselves every fool has foreseen what has happened to you the malicious rend you the worst pity you and then a hundred petty details nausea follows tears you have drunk wine you must now drink cider two servant-maids that is one too many this one must be discharged and that one work harder there are too many flowers in the garden potatoes must be planted you have been in the habit of giving fruit to your friends you will now have it sold in the market as for the poor they are no longer to be thought of are you not poor yourself dress a painful question deprive a woman of a ribbon what torture refuse ornament to her who gives you her beauty wear the appearance of a miser perhaps she will say to you what you have taken the flowers from my garden and now you are taking them from my bonnet alas to condemn her to faded gowns the family table is silent you fancy that those around you are angry with you beloved faces are careworn this is what coming down in the world means it means a dying day by day to fall is nothing it is the furnace to decrease is like a slow fire rain is waterloo diminution is st helena fate incarnate in the shape of wellington still retains some dignity but when it becomes hudson low what meanness destiny becomes a contemptible dastard one beholds the man of campo formio quarreling about a fair of silk stockings humiliating napoleon who humiliated england every ruined man traverses these two phases waterloo and st helena reduced to a humbler proportions on the evening to which we have referred and which was one of the first evenings in may lethierry leaving deruchette strolling in the garden by moonlight went to bed sadder than ever all those petty and unpleasant details complications of lost fortunes all these preoccupations of the third order which begin by being insipid and end by being gloomy were rolling about in his mind disagreeable accumulations of miseries Ms. Thierry felt his fall to be irremediable what was to be done what was to become of him what sacrifices must he impose on deruchette which should he dismiss douce or grasse should he sell les braves should they not be reduced to quitting the island to be nothing where one has been everything is in very truth an intolerable descent and the idea that all was over to recall those trips which bound france to the archipelago those tuesdays of sailing those fridays of return that throng upon the quay those great cargoes that industry that prosperity that direct and proud navigation that machinery into which man puts his will that all-powerful boiler that smoke that reality 
the steamer is the compass completed the compass indicates the straight road the steamer follows it the one proposes the other executes where was his durand his magnificent and sovereign durand that mistress of the sea that queen which made him king to have been in his country the man of ideas the man of success the man of revolution to renounce it to abdicate to exist no longer to become a laughing-stock to be an empty sack which once was filled to belong to the past when one has been the future to end in the haughty pity of idiots to see the triumph of routine obstinacy the beaten track egotism ignorance to behold the going and coming of gothic coasters the sport of the waves begin again to see the antiquated grow young again to have wasted his life to have been a light and to suffer eclipse ah how beautiful upon the waves had been that proud smokestack that prodigious cylinder that pillar with a capital of smoke that column grander than the column of vendome for upon the one there is only a conquered man while upon the other there is progress the ocean had been subdued it was certainty on the open sea this had been seen in that little isle in that little port in little st sampson yes it had been seen indeed it had been seen and it would never be seen again all this throng of regrets tortured lethierry there are mental sobbings never perhaps had he felt his loss more bitterly a certain stupor follows these acute attacks beneath this weight of sadness he fell into a doze he remained for about two hours with closed eyes sleeping a little thinking much feverish these stupors hide an obscure and very fatiguing labor of the brain towards the middle of the night about midnight a little earlier or a little later he shook off his doze he woke he opened his eyes his window faced his hammock he beheld an extraordinary thing a form was in front of his window an unprecedented form the smokestack of a steamer miss letterry sat upright with a sudden movement the hammock oscillated as in the agitation of a tempest letterry gazed there was a vision in front of the window the port flooded with moonlight was framed in its panes and against that brightness quite close to the house there was outlined upright round and black a superb silhouette the smokestack of an engine was there letterry sprang out of his hammock ran to the window raised the sash leaned out and recognized it the smokestack of the durand was before him it was in its old place its four chains held it moored to the rail of a boat in which beneath it a mass of complicated form could be distinguished etierry retreated turned his back to the window and fell back upon the hammock in a sitting posture he turned round again and again he beheld the vision a moment later in the time required for a flash of lightning he was on the quay lantern in hand to the durand's former mooring ring was moored a bark bearing a little towards the stern 
a massive block from which rose the smokestack straight before the window of Les Braves. The bow of the bark ran out beyond the corner of the wall of the house, flush with the quay. There was no one on the boat. This bark had a form peculiar to itself, which all Guernsey could have described. It was the paunch. Lettieri leapt into it. He ran to the mass which he perceived beyond the mast. It was the engine. There it was, complete, entire, intact, squarely planted on its cast-iron flooring. The boiler had all its rivets. The paddle-shaft was set up on end and lashed near the boiler. The brine-pump was in its place. Nothing was missing. Lettieri inspected the engine. The lantern and the moon aided each other in lighting him. He passed the whole mechanism in review. He saw the two boxes which stood beside it. He looked at the paddle-shaft. He went to the cabin. It was empty. He returned to the engine and touched it. He thrust his head into the boiler. He knelt down in order to look inside. He set his lantern in the furnace, and its light illuminated the whole mechanism and almost produced the optical illusion of a lighted engine. Then he burst into a laugh, and drawing himself up, with his eyes riveted upon the engine, his arms outstretched towards the funnel, he cried, Help! The port bell was situated on the quay a few paces distant. He ran to it, seized the chain, and began to jerk the bell furiously. End of chapter 1 The Bell of the Port